Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. And action. Welcome, everyone, to the Hooked on Movies podcast. Today, we will be looking at the 1938 classic from director Frank Capra, You Can't Take It With You. With me are Ken. Not with my money. And Ted. Eric, I've sort of got myself in the monastery, and I can't get out. That is definitely a problem, Ted. And I am, of course, Eric. Lincoln once said, with malice towards none and charity to all. Nowadays, they say, think the way I do, or I'll bomb the daylights out of you. It was as accurate as it was in 1938 as it is today. And we will be talking about You Can't Take It With You. Ted, give us the details on this movie. You Can't Take It With You is uh, directed by Frank Capra. was a screenplay by Robert Riskin. It's based off of the play... You Can't Take It With You by George Kaufman and Moss Hart. It has a running time of 126 minutes. It has a release date of September 29, 1938. It had an estimated budget $1,644,000. It had a box office gross of $2.2 million. That's a lot of money in 1938. It is. It's a pretty good chunk of change for back then, considering Uh, it was a very popular movie. Um, you Can't Take It With You stars Gene Arthur as Alice Sycamore, Lionel Barrymore as Grandpa Martin Vanderhoff, Jimmy Stewart as Tony Kirby, Edward Arnold as Anthony P. Kirby, Misha Auer as Potap Kalenkinov, Ann Miller as Essie Carmichael, Spring Bingington as Penelope Sycamore, Samuel S. Hines as Paul Sycamore, Donald Meek as Poppins, H.B. Warner as Ramsey, Dub Taylor as Ed Carmichael, Mary Forbes as Marion Kirby, and Harry Davenport as the Night Court Judge. All right. Ted, tell us what the critics thought of this movie. The critic score on Rotten Tomatoes for this movie is a certified fresh of a 95%. It has an audience score of 88%. Amazingly enough, I was able to find critics from the actual time when the movie was released which is sometimes rather difficult to do when we're dealing with movies that go back into the early 40s and late 30s. We'll start with the one negative I was able to find, a man by the name of Otis Ferguson. He was from the New Republic. He said, It may be disappointment that any Frank Capra comedy should be heavy and overdone, which makes You Can't Take It With You seem such a dud. And then on the positive side, we had Mildred Martin, from the Philadelphia Inquirer, she said, For those who didn't see the play, You Can't Take It With You will provide a merry, not-too-thoughtless couple of movie hours. Colvin McPherson of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch said, You Can't Take It With You is a tumultuous success, a whizzing, dazzling, noisy explosion of mirth that equals the accidental fireworks demonstration, which is one of its main scenes. 
And then May Tenney of the Chicago Tribune said, What a cast. I shan't stop to lay individual laurels on deserving brows because everybody in the cast turns out a magnificently rounded performance. A brain-picked parcel of players if I ever saw one. And not only do we have some great old-timey names, but then with Miss Tenney, we have some of the nice... uh, the late thirties uh, language. Anytime you can use the word "shant" in your review, I think you have to use it. The same person that like reviewed Shakespeare stuff. You know, that's kind of how people talked back then. Especially people who wrote for the newspaper, you had to have that flowery language. Look at sports writers like Grantland Rice. We would never have had the Four Horsemen from Notre Dame uh, without Grantland Rice and how he wrote. I think it's kind of neat to hear. How they wrote from the time, especially about movies. Did President did we... Roosevelt like the movie? I'm assuming he probably did. I think he was a little bit preoccupied at the time, though. Okay, Ken, tell us about the plot of this movie. You can't take it with you. A successful banker, Anthony P. Kirby, has just returned from Washington, D.C., where he has effectively granted a government-sanctioned munitions monopoly, which will make him very rich. He intends to buy a 12-block radius around a competitor's factory to put him out of business. But there is one house that is a holdout to selling. Kirby instructs his real estate broker to offer a huge sum for the house. And if it's not accepted, to cause trouble for the family. Meanwhile, the holdout, Grandpa Vanderhoff, convinces a banker named Poppins to pursue his dream of making animated toys. Kirby's son, Tony, who is a vice president in the family's company, has fallen in love with the company's stenographer, Alice Sycamore, who is Grandpa Vanderhoff's granddaughter. When Tony proposes marriage, Alice is worried her family would be looked upon poorly by Tony's rich and famous family. In fact, Alice is the only relatively normal member of the eccentric Sycamore family, led by Vanderhoff. Unknown to Tony and his parents, Alice's family lives in the house that will not sell out. Kirby and his wife strongly disapprove of Tony's choice for marriage. Before she accepts, Alice asks Tony to bring his family to the house to become better acquainted with their future in-laws. But when Tony purposely brings the family on the wrong day, the Sycamore family is caught off guard and the house is in disarray. As the Kirbys are preparing to leave after a rather disastrous meeting, the police arrive in response to what they perceive as printed threats on flyers by one of Grandpa's granddaughter's husband. Fireworks in the basement accidentally go off and the police arrest everyone in the house. Held up in the drunk tank, preparing to see the night court judge, Mrs. Kirby repeatedly insults Alice and makes her feel unworthy of her son, while Grandpa explains to Kirby the importance of having friends, and despite all the wealth and success in business, you can't take it with you. At the court hearing, the judge allows for Grandpa and his family to sell the charges for disturbing the peace and making illegal fireworks by assessing a fine, which Grandpa's neighborhood friends pitch in to pay for. He repeatedly asks why the Kirbys were at the Vanderhoff house. When Grandpa, attempting to help Kirby, says it was to talk over selling the house, Alice has an outburst and says it was because she was engaged to Tony, but is spurning him because of how poorly her family has been treated by his family. This causes a sensation in the papers, and Alice flees the city. To be with Alice, Grandpa decides to sell the house. Thus mean the whole section of the town must vacate in preparation for building a new factory. 
when Kirby's competitor Ramsey dies after confronting him for being ruthless and a failure of a man, Kirby has a realization he is heading for the same fate and decides to leave the meeting where the signing of the contract is to take place. As the Vanderhoffs are moving out of the house, Tony tries to track down Alice. Kirby arrives and talks privately with Grandpa, sharing his realization. Grandpa responds by inviting him to play Polly Wally Doodle on the harmonica that he gave him. The two let loose with the rest of the family joining in. Alice takes Tony back as Mr. Kirby blesses the relationship. Later at the dinner table, Grandpa says grace for the Sycamore family and the Kirbys, revealing that Kirby has sold back the houses on the block. The end. All right. Thank you for that plot synopsis there, Ken. So let's talk about the first time we saw this movie. Um, I'll kick it off here. I'm probably the minority person who has not seen this movie. I just saw it two weeks ago for the first time. It only took me, what, 80, 90 years to see it. So I've seen it uh, twice. Ken, I know you uh, probably saw this movie quite some time ago. It's hard to tell when I saw this movie. I actually saw the play first in high school. And, um, oh, that's kind of cool. Okay. Yeah. I really enjoyed the play a lot. And so when I found out later on that there was a movie adaptation of this, I had to check it out. And of course, it had one of my favorite actors, Jimmy Stewart, in it. So I would probably say I probably watched it in my early 20s, but I just don't know exactly when. Fair enough. How about you, Ted? Um, it was earlier this year. Ken wanted me to, to come over and see this uh this movie he had been telling me about for a while because I like Jimmy Stewart as well and Ken thought that I would enjoy the movie and so that was the first time I saw the movie. It's interesting Ken that you saw the play first. That brings an interesting perspective to this whole situation that we're going to talk about. It was a good play. It just, you know, it was a high school play done by a local high school. I thought it was funny and I was very impressionable back then. I saw this and another um play like this uh, the man who came to dinner so i saw the man okay. who came to dinner as well as a play and saw that as a movie later on too so i just enjoy these type of movies that are based on plays you see two different takes one take how it was meant to really be which is the play and then the film yeah. ad- adaptation which is not that far different except for outside the house so everything that happens outside the house is basically frank capra adding to it was this ever on broadway yes very cool. All right. It was a major hit. In fact, Capra had to pay, at that time, they wanted $200,000 for the rights to this movie, which is a lot of money for a play. But I believe it was Columbia Pictures, kind of by the balls at that particular time, because they had used his name for another movie without his permission. And so he kind of used that as leverage, make them buy the rights to this movie, and then allowed him to, of course, direct it as well. Yeah, it's crazy some of the weird-ass stuff that the studios did in, like, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. How they had their actors and actresses under contract, and they'd loan them out to studios, and they just try and screw each other left and right. It's weird. It's so weird to read some of the stories of stuff that happened during that time period. Frank Capra was the man here. Columbia didn't want to get rid of him because he had already won Best Director. I think at this particular time, he was on the board for the Academy, and he was also the head of the Directors Guild. The Screen Actors Guild at that particular time wanted to get rid of the Academy Awards, but Frank Capra kind of stood in their way. He was a very powerful individual at this time as far as in the movie business. The movie company tried to get away with putting his name on something that wasn't his because of his name recognition alone probably would bring people in to see it it's real interesting how that all plays out 
Eric, you had talked about like how the studios had their own actors and everything. That's why we see a lot of repeat actors in a lot of Capra's movies. Like here, we see a lot of crossovers between You Can't Take It With You and It's a Wonderful Life. Especially, of course, Lionel Barrymore and Jimmy Stewart. But then you have the man who plays Lionel Barrymore's son-in-law. That's uh, Mr. Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. The Crow yeah, or Blackbird. The Crow. They have right the crows. Yeah. But also, too, you know, I didn't really notice it the first time I watched it with Ken. But when I watched it this time for the podcast, the guy who plays the night court judge, I recognized his voice and I couldn't place it. But I was able to finally place it. He is the doctor in Gone with the Wind. One of the male black character that's part of the family is also plays in Gone with the Wind as well. And then you have a crossover with some of the Zelnik clan of actors as well. So it's interesting how when you go back in time to this era, there's so many crossover actors from one studio to the other. Another one that's out there, his name is Charles Lane. He plays the IRS agent that Grandpa kind of messes with and tells him he doesn't want to pay taxes. At least not with his money, right? But he's also in It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, he tells Potter that he's going to have a job with uh, the boys. And actually, he's a very interesting person because he actually lived to be about 102 years old. He had a very long, long life. With Gene Arthur, who plays Alice in this movie, they wanted her to play Mary in It's a Wonderful Life. That was Frank Capra's first choice. Because Frank Capra loves Gene Arthur. And actually, Gene Arthur and Jimmy Stewart work very well together here, as well as they work together extremely well in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So right. they had some chemistry there. They were kind of like the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, of probably, of that day. And so he wanted to get them back together, but she was in a play and couldn't make that work. So that's how Donna Reed got that particular part. And also, he used Gene Arthur for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which is another big hit for Frank Capra as well. And then we also know Gene Arthur for playing the female role in Shane. Very gifted actress who, who I really enjoyed. I, I, I like watching her in movies. She brings, I don't know, it's a different type of look and beauty to her that kind of makes me just focus on her. Well, we'll talk about it in an upcoming episode, but I really like her in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I think she plays a very good role in that particular movie. I agree. She was was very good in in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And we'll talk about that on our next podcast. That's right. So this movie obviously was considered a very unique comedy for the time. There is a lot of oddball characters and that's being very lightly when it comes to the cast of this movie the way it is spanned out with everyone in there ken what were some of the characters that you related to or really really liked in this movie i like alice's mom she's writing a play only because a typewriter was delivered there eight years ago and they make a joke in the in the film that if it had been farming equipment that she would have become a farmer that's what she liked and i love the fact that she uses the uh, little kitty as a paperweight Every time, you know, she finishes a page, she just picks up the kitty and puts it back down. And I just like that. And, of course, every time there was an explosion, she has to go hang the, the sign back up. Just not a care in the world. Doing what she wants to do, like most of all in this house. And I love the fact that she got this poor person into a monastery and doesn't know how to get her out. She's just a fun little character. And it does make me sad at the end when they when they sell the house. And the fireworks go out for the last time, or supposedly the last time, and the sign falls down, and then she cries on Grandpa. How about you, Ted? They're an eclectic group of 
Yeah, that's that's saying it lightly. To say the least. You know, the guy that I think has probably the funniest story is the Iceman, who ends up becoming, he's like an explosives uh, expert. He's uh, messing around with Grandpa in the basement with the fireworks. He's a very interesting character. It's one of those characters that you probably don't need to know anything else about, but he adds enough color that he fits the eccentric lifestyle that they've accumulated here in the in the house i think he fits really well in there and he provides a good comic relief in my opinion where some of the others may be a little bit silly i think he actually is relatively funny the uh, the strangest things is you know he's doing all this stuff with the explosives and the fireworks and then all of a sudden He's a model. Ken's character wants to paint him as a discus thrower, and he goes down and he changes into some, like, ancient Grecian garb. It's like, where did he get that stuff from? It's just random. It's probably just laying around the house, and they just decide, hey, we have it. He Let's was, make a he was holding it. on to it for, like, 20 years yeah, or whatever, 30 years. Yeah, yeah in the that's basement. No, there's one more character I like to talk about, and that's Mr. Poppins. I do like the interesting progression of Mr. Poppins, who's a very timid man working at that... It's, it's a real estate agency. Of, yeah, but he's doing numbers. He's crunching numbers. So he's yeah, some he's, type he's of like an accountant. Banker. He's doing numbers, and he's very timid, and he doesn't like his job. But he's a little bit of afraid to take chances and things of that nature. But just within a day of being there, initially he gets scared of the fireworks and stuff like that, and wants to walk out. But then when he's down there and the firework goes off, he's like, "That wasn't very loud, was it?" He gets accustomed pretty quickly to life in the house and then he starts wearing these masks that try to scare people including the kirby's he comes up it was a monkey mask that's what he scared the kirby's with the monkey mask but then he came up with another mask later on when the police came they called it a monster mask Mm -hmm. or something to that extent but he's a very interesting character that kind of embraces very quickly the lifestyle after kind of worrying about being a lily of the field i like the little Um, bunny toy he had that he designed mm -hmm. That was very yeah, unique. And actually, yeah, uh, Frank Capra Jr. ended up keeping that. He, unfortunately, has also passed away. But I would imagine they have passed that down from family member to family member. Yeah, I would, I would hope so. I would hope so. What about you, Eric? Any characters that you like? Yeah, actually, I like Lionel Barrymore as uh, Grandpa Martin Vanderhoff. I liked his character. I like him as an actor. Obviously, we know uh, from past roles, he obviously has suffered from arthritis, and they put a cast on his foot there so he could wear the crutches and actually act in the movie. He suffered from uh, arthritis most of his life, hence why he was in the wheelchair in It's a Wonderful Life from 1947. You can see how it progressed over the decade uh, with his arthritis. I liked his character because obviously we did It's a Wonderful Life earlier where we saw him as an evil kind of man that no one could love, no family, no friends, no personality, just money-driven, and that's all he cared about. But Grandpa Vanderhoff is the complete opposite. Now, yeah, the people of the house are a little wacky, but he's also a little wacky and a little zany, but he's kind of got his, his head screwed on straight, and you gotta love him. I mean, he's just a fun character. He doesn't let anything get to him at all i mean the irs is threatening to audit him and he doesn't care he doesn't let a thing get to him and i even when he's you know in jail doesn't bug him 
Let's play the mouth organ. Let's have a little fun, right? Yeah, he loses his cool that one time, right? And then what does he do? He apologizes. He feels so bad about it. So that's my favorite character in the movie. He's very likable to the point where you can't tell Lionel Barrymore is the same person from It's a Wonderful Life to You Can't Take It With You. Granted, there's 10 years in between, but he wears both characters on his face. You can see the kindness and the lovingness of grandpa here but when he's mr potter you can see the evilness in that face so yeah there's a very big contrast between the two and if we go main actors the one i like the most here is actually edward arnold who plays uh mr kirby mr anthony p kirby i think he's the most interesting character of the bunch and actually this movie is really about him i think because he does portray kind of an evil character but there are times throughout the movie where he does show a light side i mean when we see mr potter and it's a wonderful life he's never happy about anything whereas you can see mr kirby really loves his son when grandpa goes off on him in the jail and tells him he's a failure as a dad i don't totally agree with him on that i think he's made some mistakes as a dad but i don't think he's a total failure because his son loves him but tony knows that his dad loves him tony just feels like he's trapped under the weight of being what his dad is because that's passed on to generation to generation to generation i think the job of the men of the kirby household is to prepare their sons for that job and i think that's the main goal of mr kirby is not to be rich but to make his son better off than he was i think that's the responsibility of his dad and his dad loses sight of what's really important and all that and i think that's why grandpa reminds him that it's not all about the money because at the end of the day you can't take it with you you both have brought up two different characters that i'd just like to comment briefly on it the lionel barrymore character grandpa vanderhoff i think you said it very well it really shows just the breadth of talent that lionel barrymore had like you had said they couldn't be more polar opposite characters you have a guy who's a fun loving happy person truly happy in his own skin he doesn't have a care to what other people really think about how he is and then to play the polar opposite of in mr potter who is just to quote jimmy stewart he's a warped bitter old man who (laughs) has no indeed he has nobody i think that he's a wonderful character i think he brings a warmth to that character that in a lesser actor's hands that character doesn't come off as sincere. I think that's the one thing that I think that he really brings to the character is sincerity. It draws me to that character. And it's interesting, Ken, that you thought that this is like mostly Mr. Kirby's story. There's a lot of different threads here going on in the story. And I think that's reminiscent of a lot of plays turned to movies where you have different threads like this. But Mr. Kirby is an interesting character as well. Because I agree with you, I don't think that he is the protagonist in this movie. And when we talk about some themes, I want to put a pin in that because that's going to be one of my themes as to what the true protagonist of this movie is. But Mr. Kirby's an interesting person. I agree with you. I don't think that he is a bad father. I think he's a very relatable father. He works hard and may not have been as present as he always could have been but wanted to be. I think it's a very relatable position for um 
a guy to be in. And I think that makes him extremely relatable. And I think that's also a difficult thing to put onto screen to make those connections like that. I did read they had he had some trouble remembering his lines. Edward Arnold here does a really amazing job as Mr. Kirby. And I like the fact that he finally relents and gives in to realize that he needs to take a more relaxed approach, almost not nearly as drastic of a change as what George Bailey goes through in It's a Wonderful Life, but it's kind of a similar type of a realization that you have to live for today. It's kind of a carpe diem type of a thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. I can't argue with either one of those two. I mean, you talked about two of my favorite of the main characters. I mean, we'll talk about the love story shortly. I mean, I think that's something that's almost completely separate. But those two characters, I think, are the two most important characters in the movie. To add on to both of these actors real quick, with Lionel Barrymore, we um, talked about the fact that he had crippling arthritis and a hip injury while filming this movie. I think it actually adds to the character because he's able to do this with an injury. He has a smile on his face and like Eric had said, nothing seems to get him down. Even though he's injured, he's going around and living life to its fullest. Especially uh, when the injury is related to sliding down a banister. What a fun injury. What a fun injury indeed, right? Yeah. And then we talk about Edward Arnold, and we'll talk a little bit more about him also in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, because he is the ultimate bad guy. He actually becomes Mr. Potter, basically, in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So these actors are flip-flopping in different roles. So it's kind of interesting to see uh, one play, the person that we all want to be. We all want to be grandpa here we all want to be able to lead the family but do it in a fun way that everybody loves and and he has all the friends in the world and then on the opposite end there's no friends nobody likes him the only people that associate with him are people that are scared of him because he could take whatever he wants from them and i think that's interesting that he has these character actors that he mix and matches in different movies they'd be the the angel in one character and the devil in the next so i think that's interesting how they do that But this is Jimmy Stewart's first big starring role for a major motion picture here. He had some other film credits before this, because after this, of course, he does Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with Frank Capra. But you see a fun Jimmy Stewart here. Jimmy Stewart is kind of like Grandpa. He's a younger version of Grandpa. You could see it. He does have fun, but he's tied down to the job because he thinks he's obligated to his dad to take the job. But he does those silly things. The second Moore family, he kind of fits all of them. He kind of feels like he belongs in that house. And like I said earlier with Gene Arthur, there's more here for me than actually Mr. Smith Goes Watson. I really like her. The chemistry here between the two is, is something special. I agree. I think that they have tremendous chemistry. I think that both Gene Arthur and Jimmy Stewart, there's an undeniable thing that they have between them that make them almost simpatico as far as how they act. I think we'll see this again when we do Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Because if we're going to talk about the love story here, this is kind of where it kind of gets a little bogged down for me as far as the movie goes. Love stories have all been done. It's how you approach it. And of course, there has to be some sort of conflict. I understand what Jimmy Stewart does when he, he wants his family to meet her family in their truest form it's a little unfair what he does 
it's kind of a dirty game that he played. I don't think he his intention was bad, but it was almost like he was setting these people up for failure. It's clear to the viewer that when these people are approached with any sort of scrutiny that the, somebody like the Kirbys are going to bring to them, they're going to be looked down upon. And nobody wants their family to be looked down upon. It's very naive of Jimmy Stewart's character. I like his character, but I have a hard time with his character. Alice kind of points out to the fact that he's kind of a spoiled rich kid. And even he mentions it more than once that if he cries enough, he gets what he wants. I don't know. It's the, it's the little things that he does that kind of get on my nerves. They're going to the rich restaurant and he puts the sign on the on her back. I don't know. I just think some of that is not necessary. Yeah, what was up with that scene? That was a really odd scene, putting that sign on her back. Well, the sign was put on him first by her. So right. when they're doing the dancing outside with the, the kids, she pins the sign on him initially. And then he pins the sign on her after she goes. He just never takes it off. They know that the sign is on them. But when they're at at his dad's table... They walk backwards so, you know, they can't see the sign on her back. And that's why they start knocking things over. And I think he's just having fun and having a good old time. And as far as what you say about the dinner, I agree. There's, you know, he's kind of naive here. But at the same time, she puts him in a corner, too. She kind of gives him a really hard ultimatum at the restaurant about the parents' meeting. And he's like, I don't want them to meet. Or I want them to meet. I want them to know the real you. And I want them to know your family, not the pretend family. So there's some things that I like about that. He doesn't want to play this fake game that she wants to play. She wants to pretend that she's something that she's not to prove that she's worthy. And it's it's acceptable. I understand why she does it. I'm not saying she's totally wrong for trying to do that. But at the same time, he wants them to like her for her. And if they don't like her for her, he doesn't care. This is what I like about his character. At no time does he ever hide behind the money, hide behind the family and choose them over her. He's always in her corner. I know at the time when they're at night court and he slides over to their side of the family side when everything's going down. But he doesn't really have a choice. She doesn't really want to talk to him because of what he did earlier. And when he does try to stick up for her, she gets mad at it because he thinks it's too late. Well, they're letting the fathers take care of the issue. So I actually think he's a very nice character. And I think he wants to love her and wants her parents to accept her for what she is. And he doesn't give a damn if they accept her or not, because at the end of the day, he's still looking for her. He gives up his job. He gives up being vice president because the only thing that matters in his life is her. He does things without thinking of the ramifications or consequences of his actions. And I think that that is kind of what is a little bit frustrating. I like his character too. Don't get me wrong. I think that it's a, he's a good character. I'm a little frustrated with the character, to say the that's, least. That's her I, family, I, though. Her family is just like that. They set off fireworks without no, a care of the world of who no, bothers or who doesn't bother. I mean, look at Mr. Poppins. You have Grandpa that takes Mr. Poppins away from his job. <laughs> you know, no, I... what, are the, what are the ramifications of that? We hope they're good, right? But in the, in the long run, Grandpa and the family does whatever they want to do. True. I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, I understand all of this. He needed to be a little bit more realistic instead of idealistic. They're coming from an idealistic world. He's coming from more of a realistic world. 
and he's not acting like he's coming from a realistic world. She's more of the realist. It makes for a very interesting dynamic, in my opinion. It's because of them being exposed to each other's family. So she becomes more of trying to have the snobs accept her. So she goes to their level because she's met them and seen how they look at her and how they kind of look like they could treat her. And he it goes to their house and see how crazy and wide open they are. And I think they're taking pages from each other's families and running with it. I think that's what they're doing because he is actually taken back by her family. He loves it. He's laughing at grandpa and the conversations that he's having with the IRS. And in the car, all he can talk about is her family. He is impressed. And I think he tried to take a page out of their book where she's taking a page out of his family's book they're both getting it wrong. At the end, what they should be is true to themselves. I think he thinks that grandpa probably would appreciate them trying to be real. And she's trying to impress them by having cocktails and, you know, dinner set and everything looking really nice and being polite and all that good stuff. I think that's why he does what he does and why she does what she does. Tony's trying to make some changes within his own family. And that could be naive. And that could be being spoiled, getting what he wants. At the same time, I think the great thing about it is his heart. His heart, though, is in the right place, regardless of the stupid mistakes he makes. He does it for what we believe is the right reasons. If there's one part of the movie that I could do without, I don't care for the whole scene in the park. To me, it adds nothing to the movie. It doesn't advance the storyline in any way. That would have been a whole section that I could have cut out and just done without because feels out of place. I think there's some things to be taken because that's where I believe she finds out more about him and he tells her about his dreams and who he really is. That he's not really this banker sort, that he had uh, dreams of finding why the grass grows greener, you know, and wanted to like provide the world with energy. I mean, he's an idealist. And I think that's why we have that. I do think the scene's a little dated. With the dance and with the kids, we would have to go back to find out why that was illegal. But I do do think it does play a part because, you know, we want to see what Tony's dreams and ambitions are. We want to know where his heart lies. And I think we find out right there on that bench. It looks like they were never intended going to the ballet in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Weren't they supposed to go to the ballet? That's one of the things that kind of gets bogged down in the details i mean it's okay to have the part of that scene in the park it's the whole dancing thing i don't understand why that has to be there i guess that they can dance i think it's, it's a preview weird. of what they are what they could be when both families are not around but like i said i think it's a tad dated so i can understand if there was a part of the movie to take out maybe that would be it the dance part but i do love the restaurant scene after the fact i know it looks awkward with the sign and everything but I love the fact that Jimmy Stewart says, that, you know, a mouse, a mouse. Oh, what do you mean a mouse? A rat. You mean a rat. That's, I mean, six rats. He yeah. just kept on embellishing more and more and having fun with it. It's actually a part of Jimmy Stewart that actually we don't really see a lot in his movies. I think he is very funny in this and very enjoyable. And like I said earlier, the chemistry between them both is really good. The scene that we see earlier with them at our desk, they're holding hands and the phone rings and he won't let go. It's cute. The chemistry is undeniable at that moment. And then, of course, the mom walks in and gives them that look. Would have liked to see more of it. And actually, the play is a little bit more about them. And this movie, it's more about the two dads and the battle between how people 
could live or should live. It's all up to debate. There should be probably a happy medium between the two sides, but that's what really the whole movie's about. It's not really about the love story. The love story takes a, a back seat to them. Though I would say the more and more I watch it, the more and more I try to pull out the love story and try to get more into it because there is something there that is pretty good. Got the one group that's all business, all money, no fun, everything's by the book, and they're mean, and they're mean to each other. And then you've got the other family, they take nothing serious, money's not a factor, and everyone in the neighborhood loves them. Everyone in the neighborhood respects that family. Like when the houses were going up for sale and the land, you know, they went to that family and they're like, what's Mr. Vanderhoff going to do? He's like the go-to patriarch in the neighborhood. He breaks his promise at the end and sells the house anyway. Yes, and that whole neighborhood is so distraught, which they have a right to be, obviously. Amazingly enough, they don't take it out on him. You would think that, hey, you made a promise to them that they wouldn't lose their homes or anything like that, and then all of a sudden they're out of a house and home, and they have to move. Is it a little unrealistic to think that you could do whatever you want and it not affect the people around you? Eventually, you know, when you do what you want, it's going to tick somebody off. You can't make everyone happy. So I was kind of surprised at the end that they didn't turn on him. Turn on him. Were if you they turned on him? Then it would have been a different <laughs> movie altogether. Were you looking like pitchforks and like the townspeople in uh, Young Frankenstein just banging at the door? Yeah, we want Grandpa. Yeah, we want. We want grandpa. his blood. That's right. But what really, in reality, wouldn't they have just built the factory and everything around that? Apparently, house? not in I mean, that era. I guess you need yeah. all thirteen acres of land around it. All right. Probably zoning. I don't know. It, of course, you wouldn't have a movie without it, right? The protagonist, exactly. homes and businesses. It was a little bit of everything. Were they connected yeah. to other homes? No, it's just it no, was, if don't... you looked at it, it was almost like it was like a little bit of a downtown area with a little bit of residential because, you know, there was a lot of storefronts that, you know, they had 10 days to vacate and homes and people, a lot of renters in the area. It's in the heart of New York City. Of course it is. Very odd placement. There are parts of it that you have to suspend some believability. It doesn't take away from the, the movie as a whole for me. <laughs> Ken, you're right. It would be a completely different movie if all of a sudden the people turned on Grandpa. That's not the heart of the movie, and that's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is that they're beloved. And it's almost like the people are more upset that he's leaving, that they're going to lose everything <laughs> because he decided to sell his place. I don't know. What did you think of the love story, Eric? The love story is a very interesting topic. I see both sides of the coin on this one. You've got a love story, but is it really a love story? I mean, I got to look at this through 1938 eyes. It's a little hokey by today's standards, yeah. um, but it is kind of what you would expect. I kind of agree with Ken. I think this movie is more geared towards the fathers, Mr. Kirby and Mr. Vanderhoff. I think it's a good versus evil. It is almost like, if you think about it, kind of like it's a wonderful life, but reversed. Because in the end, Mr. Kirby finds happiness and in turn makes everyone in the neighborhood happy and makes his family happy and his, his son happy. Everyone wins. So it's almost like a reversed, it's a wonderful life. I think it's more of a Christmas carol. Bob Cratchit, who's basically yeah. the grandpa who, you know, no matter what you do, it's not about the money, it's about the family. And then, of course, Scrooge being the one that's a tightwad that wants all the money and, you know, he doesn't care. So I think it's closer to that than it's a wonderful life, at least in, in my opinion. Or, but it has or, the, Bill, or Bill Murray Scrooged. Because that character is actually, in Scrooge, 
he's a little bit more humanized. He actually isn't a complete jerk. He can talk to his brother. He does have a love of his life that isn't dead in Karen Allen. So <laughs> right. So he still has something to like hook onto. I would have probably liked to have seen a little bit more of the love story. I think we're giving the first part of the movie is a little heavy handed on the love story. And then that's kind of zapped away from us. And even at the end, there's not enough of it to revitalize it. She doesn't want to have anything to do with them. The only time that their love is rekindled is when Mr. Kirby actually smiles and nods when he sees them both together to give him the blessing. Because before that, she didn't want anything to do with Tony. And so I felt like the story of Grandpa and Mr. Kirby took away from the love story and the love story no longer really mattered anymore. I think the love story is a little disappointing in the second half of the movie, whereas the first half of the movie, it's really enjoyable. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. The love story kind of takes a back seat towards the latter half of the movie. The love story is something that is a fun addition to a movie that has deeper things going on in and around it that we're going to be looking at. I don't want to say window dressing because that's going to be a little bit too dismissive. It needed a little bit more attention to detail if they were going to make it more of the central piece, I think is kind of where I come out on it. Once the restaurant scene ended, the love story was done. The the conflict of her not liking him and everything and moving away, that all is... Rushed? Yeah, I don't know. It It doesn't really work a whole lot for me. If this was strictly going to be about the two of them, I think more detail would have needed to have been paid attention to. But like I said, I don't think that that's the overarching point and theme of the movie. I think it all depends on what you want from this movie. If you're going in here wanting that love story, you're going to be disappointed in this movie. It's about greed versus friendship, the fortune in your life, friends and family and not money. If that's what you're coming to see that battle, then this movie, you're really happy to see this. Or if you do want a love story, just don't think about it a whole lot and just sure. enjoy it for what it is. Or stop halfway through the movie and, and, then, that's <laughs> and then go right to the end. If we're going to move on to another type of a theme from this movie that is something that I caught on to, and I've noticed it as a theme that reoccurs in Frank Hepper movies, and we had touched on this before and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful life. life. That's the theme of friends. That's what truly makes a person wealthy is not how much you have and how much you have in your bank account or that you can be essentially morally bankrupt if you don't treat people in a decent manner and have friends. That's my favorite part of It's a Wonderful Life. It makes me cry at the end of the movie every single time. And I get that same theme here. The theme of friendship, that that's what truly makes a person and how a person treats another person with caring and, and love, I think. That's what makes this movie great for me. I love that theme because there's no way you can walk out of or walk away from having watched this movie from not feeling at least a little bit better and having a good attitude. It really brings those themes forward. And it's a reoccurring thing with Capra. He's good at it. If you're good at it, you might as well keep on going back to the well over and over and over again. The thing is, though, after Mr. Smith goes to Washington, of course, we have the war. So there is kind of a break there for a while between those type of movies, which I think that 
needed a break, which the war wasn't the reason for the break, because you had Mr. Deeds goes to town, and you have It's a Wonderful Life, and you have Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and you had this movie. So there's multiple movies here that have very similar themes. At the end of the day, the goal is for you to realize there's a better way of doing things in life. And it's immeasurable of friends, family, and love. Kepper is just great at it. He just knows how to reel you in. The drunk tank scene um, is probably the best part of the movie. You get different aspects of each character. Alice's mom, before they go to jail, the police come and she's like, G-Man, she gets all excited and she actually pulls the jacket up and there's the gun there. (laughs) I forget. That's probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. Just her look on her face to see this gun on the policeman. It's priceless and and I love her for it. They're all in the jail. The true characters all show. We now see how Mr. Kirby, how really he can get both on both sides because we see how angry he can get and how, you know, he talks about his claws and he makes reference to everybody else being peasants or whatever the case may be. And then we see Grandpa lose his cool, but then apologize and give him his harmonica. We see different things of each person. We even see Tony... When Grandpa's going off on Mr. Kirby, reacting to what he has to say, we also see Mr. Kirby actually pondering all the things that Grandpa has to say, too. He's not going after him during what Grandpa is saying. He's actually being hit really hard by it. That's humanity right there. That humanizes the character. And I love that scene for that particular reason. And then on the other side, you have Tony's mom. The hookers there are talking to her. I like that one hooker is like, you're kind of classy. I, I like that kind of bracket. I need to figure out how to get into that. She's very uncomfortable. If one character I just don't like at all in, the, in this whole movie is her. She's just very about our social standing and stuff. And I also like when they get into the court. I love the judge's reactions, his smiles and stuff like that. It's reminiscent of the smiles that we'll see in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with the person who runs the Senate. He's fair, but he also has a kind face. And that's what I like about the judge, too. This movie just has a lot of likable characters, except for, like I said, Tony's mom. And I'm not sure if I like the Russian. I don't know if he stinks. Sometimes I think it's he's a little too much. I know the, the granddaughter's husband that plays was at Exilephone. He's kind of a waste of space in this movie. At least I don't particularly think he brings anything really to the table. My favorite scene, probably, like you, the court scene. I like the judge. I like the the reactions uh, from the people in the court and kind of how he handles the court. The restaurant scene is kind of funny, too. That kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. Those are my two favorites. We have to remember when this movie was made, being that it was made in the late 30s. We're still in the throes of the Great Depression. The themes of family and friends are more important than the money in the bank is exactly what people would have wanted that's the message that they needed at the time because the majority of the people in the country are hurting and it's these themes like that that would have really resonated with people families did have to come together it was about us and who we are and as a community how can we build each other up rather than tear each other down that's another central theme that it can't be overlooked And being that we're dealing with the Great Depression times, we haven't talked about whether there's a villain or a protagonist in this movie. The villain or protagonist in this movie is capitalism. And we found this again in It's a Wonderful Life. And we're going to find this again 
in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in our next episode. I'm not going to make any claims about anything for Frank Capper or the writers of these movies because all of that has been litigated far into the into the 50s through the McCarthy era. But capitalism is the main villain here. The bank is the villain. These are things that the common people would have had a connection to at this time because the bank was the one that was taking the family farm. The bank was the one that was foreclosing on people's houses. And even though he's kind of a goofy character, it's the real estate guy who is the one that's playing all of the dirty politics. We'll put it this way. It's not lost on me that the people who are at the top of the villain hierarchy here, it's shocking. When the elevator opens and Mr. Kirby's going to walk out into that room with all of these people that you know that are going to very shadily lined their own pockets with the hard-working money of the working man. And the view looking out into that room, it was not done by accident. We'll put it that way. That is a statement. I don't think that something like that should be lost in the discussion here. That's something that was done very deliberately by Frank Capra, and I think these are things that he's shown in a lot of his movies. But here again, we're playing to the times, and these were things that people would have really bought into. I don't know if I agree with that analogy with the the people that are waiting for him to sign the document, because actually I think Mr. Kirby is the insecure of all this. There are going to be benefactors, but they also talk about how they synced everything on the basis of what Mr. Kirby wanted and made them all do to a certain extent. We talk about the real estate broker earlier. They call him also Mr. Twitch because he's got the twitch in his eye. I think it's Mr. Blakely. He is mean and ruthless. Probably because that's how he is. That's he's how more he was going to get his commission. He's more of a snake than I think anybody in the whole movie is, is that particular character. And that's why he has problems with the twitch in his eye. But I think a lot of this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about Christmas Carol. He's getting to see his future through all these different type of people. He sees it through Grandpa. He sees it through his son, a life without his son, because he is forcing his son to do something that he doesn't want to do instead of accepting his son and his son's dreams for what they are. Then you have the Ramsey character, the one he's putting out of business, the one that dies. That's almost kind of like the last ghost in A Christmas Carol, the final nail in the coffin to change his ways. Like I said, I think it's all about him. I think it's focusing more on the individual greed than, let's say, corporate greed. It's trying to talk to individuals in general and to understand that, like you said earlier, that the wealth is by friends and things of that nature. Did you know that in this year of movies that they were marketed as the greatest movies ever because of the fact you had the Great Depression, money was hard on people, but people weren't going to the movies. No. People were not going to the movies Couldn't afford because, it. but also because the, the movies that were out there, they weren't uplifting. And that's why you have movies like Mr. Deeds and this movie that wins Academy Awards because that's what the country needed. We talked about Rocky winning over all the president's men and correct me if I'm wrong, Taxi Driver that was that year as well. Why does that win? Because it's uplifting. Why do we need an uplifting movie? Because we had Watergate. Vietnam War, we had all these scandals going on. The things that had happened over the last decade was so much that an uplifting movie is going to win the Academy Award because people needed to feel like they could back something. And I think that's why we see You Can't Take It With You win the Academy Award here because it's so uplifting. 
I'm not going to argue with that. What I'm saying is that there are deeper themes that are running around here that a person of that time would have noticed. And like I said, people were being foreclosed by those guys in that room. (laughs) That's why I think it's an important part where Mr. Kirby turns his back on those guys. That's an important statement. And that's one of the things that makes the movie kind of idealistic. Yeah, but those guys in the room didn't even know that Mr. Kirby had bought up all that land. They 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 did did not know that. If you listen to how things were going to go, Mr. Kirby also was going to lose a lot of power because those guys in the room were stripping him of a lot of power as well. But his only holdout was that Tony was supposed to be the president because he was negotiating with all of those people. Those weren't underlings that he was going to sign those papers with. Those were people that they were going to help create the monopoly. And there was going to be one person at the head of the monopoly. And they were all in cahoots together. When Kirby was getting all this together, he was going to try to monopolize the entire wartime industry. Essentially create the military-industrial complex himself. And this is something that um, the average person in, in during the Great Depression would have thought when they saw people who were rich all together that they were running some sort of a scheme. That's all I'm saying. And his rejection of those people, that's something that would have caused people to gravitate to the movie more. And like you said, that's an uplifting thing that would have gotten one of the reasons why this movie would have won best picture. I mean, at the beginning of the podcast, I think you kind of went over the politics behind how everything lined up with the studios and everything and the power that Capra threw at the time. Don't think that that didn't have anything to do with why it won best picture as well. We know how the Oscars have worked since their inception. All I'm saying is that there are themes at play here that are not on the surface. All right. Well, let's let's talk about our reviews of this movie. Of course, it did win Best Picture. When, uh, Ted, you made a very good point about uh, Mr. Cabra having a little bit of an influence over to why it possibly won Best Picture. I never really did consider that, but you did make a very valid point there. So let's kick it off with you, Ted. What did you think of this movie? I enjoy this movie. Liking the movie? As a whole, I I do like the movie. I think it's more enjoyable than likable. I think that you'd have a hard time coming out of this movie without having at least a little bit more of a positive attitude. And that goes a long way, making it a fun movie. I tend to try to look for things, especially when we're reviewing for the podcast, I try to look for the deeper themes and and things like that, especially when we're dealing with a particular director like Frank Capra, where we're going to do multiple movies of his to see themes in, in their particular movies. I get a little bit more out of it than that. On the surface, I like the movie. It makes me, it doesn't make me laugh out loud or anything like that, but it leaves me happier than when I went into the movie. It's definitely a movie I'll watch again. I think there are worse ways to spend two hours on a Sunday early evening with your family. So this movie's going to fall right around in a B- minus for me. It's not my favorite Jimmy Stewart movie by any means, but it's not the worst. That's where it lands for me. It's It's a fun movie. I highly recommend it to anybody who wants to watch it. Cool. All right. 
Thanks for that, uh, Ted. Can we know uh, no secret uh, love loss here between you and uh, Jimmy Stewart as an actor? So what are your thoughts of this movie? I really enjoy this movie. And yes, I love Jimmy Stewart, but Jimmy Stewart isn't really why I love this movie. I kind of was drawn to it because I knew Jimmy Stewart was in it. But at the end of the day, if his character wasn't in it, I don't think it would change how I feel about this movie. This movie makes me feel good. I laugh and I chuckle at the characters. I love the bits with the cat used as a paperweight. I love the fact that the mother gets all excited with the, the G-men and try to look to see if they have a gun on them. I like most of the oddball characters. We didn't mention the sister who's a ballet dancer who also messes around with making candy. They're fun characters, and I don't think at any time is it overdone. I don't think the characters, the side characters, overtake the movie and take it away from the important leads here. Lionel Barrymore is incredible here. The fact that he had to do it with severe um, limitations due to the arthritis in his legs and his hip injury, I think says a lot about how this movie works. It works despite the fact that it could be very cliche. It could be very overhanded. But the characters are genuine. At the end of the day, Grandpa and Mr. Kirby are well-rounded characters. We see Grandpa lose his cool. He's not always right, but majority of times he is. But he has his flaws just like everybody else. And then at the same time, Mr. Kirby is not as evil he has a heart in there. He just needs to have somebody bring it out for everybody to show. And I think that's why I enjoy this movie is for the two main leads. Again, I agree with you, Eric. My, my, my two favorite scenes seem to be the restaurant scene and the court slash jail scenes. I really like how well those are done. And those are not really in the play. And I think those are things that Capra adds to even make the play maybe a little bit better. At the end of the day, it's a movie that I will watch over and over again. Of course, I watched it a number of times for this podcast, and at no time was I ever sick of it. This movie, for me, is an A-. Wow, an A-. Okay. Let's talk about some positives and negatives of the movies here. So the positives of this movie are Lionel Barrymore. I think he's actually very good in this movie, and I'm actually growing to like Lionel Barrymore as an actor the more I, I see some of his movies. Those two scenes that Ken mentioned were my two favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, with that being said, let's talk about some of the negatives of the movie. Um, as most of you probably have listened, I did not do a lot of talking during this podcast, and there was a reason why I did not do a lot of talking. Unfortunately, I do not have a lot of positives to say about this movie. I do not agree with my co-hosts here. This movie, for me, actually, I think, does not relate well to today's society. I don't think people of our generation and or our parents' generation could probably get into this movie. I think the family, the zaniness and the wackiness of the family is annoying and drove me nuts. I think... The majority of the acting in this movie is stale and really put me to sleep. There's not much about this movie that I really liked. 
I'm trying to be very diplomatic in my review of this movie. And it hurts me to really, really say this, but I watched it one time. I watched it again with more detail, hoping that I could find stuff that I could kind of attach myself to and maybe really dig down deep. And I didn't find that. In fact, I found this podcast more entertaining than actually watching the movie. So for me, this movie is a D, as in David, plus. And I give it a D plus because I thought Lionel Barrymore was good in it. If he wasn't in the movie, I don't know what I would give it. And yes, I know that Jimmy Stewart was in this movie. And that is my review. You have a little twitch on your eye right there. I have a You're big kind of twitch blinking. in my eye. Yeah, right. You might you might want to have somebody take a look at that. I, I uh, might have to, right? I might have yeah. to, yeah. And yeah, I know it won Best Picture, too. I really had to struggle to watch it a second time. I could think of better things to do with two hours. Sleep is one of them. <laughs> I respect... And I under and I can understand where you're coming from. I can um, now. I know. No, I know you can. I know. I know. I, I, can. Can. I know. I I can understand being middle of the road of it, but I don't no. understand just hating the movie. That doesn't Snooze make fest. any sense. I didn't hate it like I've hated some of our our past past movies, but assassins. Yeah. Oh God, assassins. Oh, <laughs> but but this movie, I didn't chuckle. I didn't laugh. I didn't relate to any of the characters. Ninety percent of the people in this movie annoyed the hell out of me. I couldn't get through it. You just made Elf look like Casablanca based on the grade oh. that you gave this movie. Ooh. I think I gave Elf an right. F if I remember right. But it's, you know, okay, I don't have anything against old movies. I love many, many old movies. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, this one just, it just didn't do it. it I could not. And I and Ted, I, I listen to everything you said. I listen to everything that you said, Ken. All the themes that we talked about and the character breakdowns. And I'm like, I really didn't care. Sorry, guys. You know what, though? No, I respect I am looking forward to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's our next one we're doing. We're going one year ahead, 1939. Germans take over Poland, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Another Frank Capra movie. Will I like it? Who knows? You'll have to stay tuned, won't you? I understand what you're saying and how it could be taken that way and mm. some of the characters being annoying I, it is very understandable it's it's how very somebody could vaudevillian. come away from the movie you way. know very vaudevillian yes. when it comes to the wackiness the zaniness kind of like yes. a marx brothers kind of theme to it which i'm not real fond of the marx brothers to be honest either Uh-oh. so now I, you're i know now, now i've hurt you it. now i've hurt you no 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 <laughs> our other participant that he's talking yeah. about but this is nowhere near marx brother this you know, this a, might be the last time no. you hear from me on the podcast i might be this is not even close to community. being a Marx Brothers movie. I can Marx understand that you don't like the side characters, but they're not in it enough for to to really, in my opinion, bring this movie down. We see them here and there. They're not the main focus of the movie. If, yeah, but if when the I see them, dumb, it makes me angry. Yeah. It makes me angry because I'm like, you're not funny. Quit you're, dancing. You're, you're the Quit Mr. Twitch guy dancing. that like. Who wants to take that rabbit and throw it to the ground? Poor oh, Mr. Poppins. Quit dancing. You, you, quit, you would stab quit Mr. Painting, Poppins, wouldn't you? Quit putting the cat on the papers. Just go oh, out and get it. jobs, people. Go out and get jobs. I think he's just jealous, Ted. I think Whatever. he's just jealous of their lifestyle. Oh, no, 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 no. That's it, man. Comes, Mr. comes man who has a cat and we don't. So Right, anyway. right, <laughs> right. All right. So, oh. like we talked about, we're going a year 
We're going 1939, one year ahead. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, uh, starring everyone who's in this movie, is in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. <laughs> I'm not too far off by saying that. Will it be yeah, a better you're... movie, in my opinion? You're going to have to stay tuned and find out. Ted, what's going on in Twitter world? Well, hopefully, by the time you hear this, Twitter will still be around. Hopefully, yeah, um, we might be changing that down the road. If Twitter is still around, you can we can be found on <laughs> at hooked on underscore movies. We have a a lot of interactions that we love to have with people over on Twitter, and of course, whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, whether it be Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, <laughs> and Anchor, all of those and Good Pods. If you leave us a rating and review, that helps us get noticed. Ken, are you still talking to me? What's Facebook saying? They said that Eric needs to get a heart, is what they're saying. Uh huh. Uh huh. Anyway, join us on the Facebook page, uh, Hooked on Movies. We talk about this movie. We'll leave some trailers, some scenes from the movie. Feel free to comment about this movie, other movies we've done in the past, or just movies that you know you want to talk about in general. I love some of the articles you've been putting up there, some of the conversation that we've had on Facebook. Yeah, I enjoyed the uh, Robert Rufford interview that uh, Turner Classic Movies did that we posted on there. It's it's very interesting to hear from the, one of the masters of acting. Mm-hmm. Is that something we can all agree on? Yes. Okay. 100%. <laughs> Silence from Ken's Ken. Been... Silence well, from I, Ken. I said, I said it, so I guess it... it yes, I, I yes, so. yes. Yeah. <laughs> He can't really go back and take it back now. The... as much as I want to now. So <laughs> take the hatchet to poor Robert Redford. Uh, yeah, that one-dimensional hack. <laughs> wow! For all, all you right. past listeners, uh, Ken is stealing a line from me as I uh, described his idol, Jimmy Stewart, as one-dimensional, uh, and he uh, continues to be one-dimensional in this movie. Will he be one-dimensional in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Stay tuned. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. As always, I'm not wearing any pants. Film at 11. See you at the movies. See you next time at Hooked on Movies.